Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are continuing our coverage of the novel piece. Today, we're doing part three of chapter one. Part three here is the last part. It's pages 42 to 55 in the Orb 2012 edition. Last episode, we focused on a memory of a Christmas in Alden Dennis Weir's past. This episode, we will be spending a lot of time in the head of his family's maid, I guess you'd call her, or something like that, uh, as she recounts a folk story or urban legend she knew of her childhood. That's going to cover a lot of the text in this section, and uh, it's really great. I'm not sure what it's going to do with the rest of the story. I'm excited to find out, and and well, we should just get right to it. You say uh, urban legend or folktale, but could also be, you know, entirely true account of a of a banshee in Massachusetts. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll have to decide for ourselves, I suppose. But and as you said, Brandon, we did end last time, uh, you know, with our, our Christmas story, our Gene Wolfe's Christmas story <laughs> with uh, we're uh, thinking about the pearls that Mab Crawford got that Christmas morning. And, and he was wondering if she had been buried in them. And then this section opens with really a, a continuation of thinking about the death of Mab Crawford, but then also thinking about his grandfather's death and especially about his own mother's death. And Weir has a, a rather strange thought at this point, a rather strange thought about uh, keeping a, a kind of record. In fact, really, the whole idea that he has here is so strange that I'm not really sure how to paraphrase it. So I'm just going to read this passage. Here's what he says. It is too late for it now. But it sometimes seems to me that we ought to have kept records, by the new generations, of our remoteness from events of high significance. When the last man to have seen some occurrence or personality of importance died, and then when the last person who knew him died, and so on. But first, we would have the first man describe this event, this thing that he had seen. And when each of them was gone, we would read the description publicly to see if it still meant anything to us. And if it did not, the series, the chain of linked lives, would be at an end." And I'm going to want to unpack this more in the discussion, but I think if we are imagining that we're in the head of we're here, that these lines are in his train of thought, that is, then I think that the focus here is really on change and particularly the pace of change in modernity. And this idea that he's having here, this leads him to relate a story that uh, you said made, Brandon, I'm going to say housekeeper, uh, that their, their housekeeper, Hannah, told about going to see the Indians when she was little. And this is when we're a, a, a kid, right? This is, I think, presumably still his fifth birthday party, though that's not entirely certain. But Hannah is old at this point, uh, maybe 60, maybe even a bit older. Older than that, in fact. And so her childhood was in the 19th century. And the story that she's about to tell, I, I would say, is a hundred years, maybe a little more than that, before the present of Weir's own story, right? The present where Weir is recovering from a stroke. And so that's, you know, part of this sort of chain of, of continuity that he's thinking about. We are actually going to get more than one story from Hannah here. I mean, the, the main attraction that uh, that Brandon has, has uh, foreshadowed or teased here uh, is coming up. But before we get to that, we've got a little vignette here, uh, really not quite a proper story, I suppose. But here, let's talk about Hannah's own mother's death. We'll pause, we'll take stock of where we are, then we'll get the main attraction. So Hannah's mother died when she was a little girl. Uh, mother was sick for a while, her death was expected. And one morning, Hannah was woken by the sound of her father pounding the lid onto her mother's coffin because her mother had died in the night. And you would expect that this story is going to be about 
her mother, but really Hannah is focused on the coffin itself as an object. She's concerned with what type of wood it's made of. She's interested in the fact that her father didn't use any nails because they couldn't afford them. And that her father was busy building the coffin for days before her mother died. And so he's building it in front of his wife, but he tells her that what he's building is a chicken coop so that she can have some some eggs. And so the story that Hannah's telling about the death of her mother is really, you know, about everything except her her mother. Yeah, the story is structured around these questions that Weir is asking Hannah. He wants to he wants Hannah to retell him the story about the time she went to see the Indians. And this is her preamble to that story. Uh, and then she gets sidetracked again and tells this Banshee story uh, when Weir, as a child, remember, is trying to get her to say like an Indian word. And this is some sort of word game. And basically, I'm going to spoil uh, the moral of the Banshee story, which is like, don't try to make people say words. <laughs> Right. Um, But that's there's so much more in that Banshee story than just that. That's a that's a kind of pat summation of it. If if we're looking at it in terms of a fable. But yeah, so she's responding to these questions that Weir is asking her, which is a kind of structure of the text in general, especially as we'll see at the end of this chapter. Weir is using the same sort of technique in interrogating his memories in the past that the doctor is using on him. Uh, Whether or not he's really in a doctor's office, I think, is something we are going to have to contend with throughout the course of this whole book. Uh, That's just my gut feeling. But I want to return to a few things that are mentioned in this section of the text before we get to the Banshee story. First of all, the opening here, uh, after the section break where we started, uh, after Christmas, as Weir's thinking about the pearls, and then as he's returning to this other memory, this is an absolutely baffling return to the childhood and the birthday party, maybe. Uh, it could be after Christmas. This is a real just conflation of time. This could take place at any point in his childhood. But it opens with the reference to the mothers that were present at the birthday party, Barbara Black at least, and this phrase, they ought to have put it in a cornerstone. Now, I'm not quite sure what this is at this point. It could involve the deerskin that was part of this communal project to throw a powwow. So here again, we have this return of Indians. And when we get to our discussion, uh, I kind of crammed this uh idea that in American Indians are all over this text in a significant way. That's I'm not sure what they're doing here, uh, but we're going to put them in a category that I think will maybe help us explore that. We're in the first chapter. We're not there yet, but he moves from this statement. We should have put it. We should have put it in a cornerstone to thinking about Mab's pearls. Mab, again, he's wondering if she was buried with them. So this is some object, some important object that uh, is buried with some sort of significant structure or building. So, yeah, it's, it's a very strange and baffling transition back into 
where the narrative is headed, where Weir's mind is going. And I think it's intentionally opaque, uh, especially, Glenn, as you pointed out, as, as Weir goes on to think about things transitioning out of existence, even out of a shared meaning. And, and you're right. We are going to be talking about the passage that you read in our discussion, to be sure. Uh, and, I, and I think you're right. It is about transition. You said change. I'm saying transition here um, because I, th- I th- read this as being uh, at what point do we discard things that are meaningless? And I don't know if he's speaking culturally or about himself, uh, but the broad generalization that he's making here seems like some kind of wish for the culture. Uh, The last thing I want to point out here before we get into this Banshee story is that Hannah wakes up to a sound of coffin making. She hears the sounds that woke her, but silence is the thing that wakes up weird. And to me, that's a really strange contrast. There's a lot of references to waking in this chapter. We're not going to be enumerating them in the discussion because, you know, if I did every trick of literary uh, <laughs> criticism here, the, the first, it would take us six hours to talk about this opening chapter. So I had to categorize it some way, but just recognize uh, for our audience that we, we need to be paying attention to these moments of waking. That's my sense of the text. And, and the word wake or woke is used uh, probably half a dozen times in this opening chapter. And this one specifically is a real contrast to the opening of the story. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go talk about a banshee. So after the death of Hannah's mother, there was an Irish girl who worked for them as a, a servant. And Hannah is now retelling a story that that girl, uh, her name is Kate, uh, she's relating a story that Kate told her. Uh, and of course, this is Weir remembering the time when he heard Hannah tell this story that she heard when she herself was a child. Uh, a lot of layers there. And I think those layers are are important. But at any rate, here is the story. And as we have been teasing, it is about a banshee. And a banshee, in this story, as we are told, a banshee is a ghost. It is the worst type of ghost. It's the one type that you just can't get rid of, not even if you call in the bishop. And if you burn down the house, the banshee will just haunt the ashes. And in this story, at least, banshees are old women. They are the ghosts of midwives who have killed the baby they were caring for because someone paid them to do it so that the baby would not inherit some property. Like, very specific origin story for every banshee, apparently. And the banshee in this story haunts a barn in Massachusetts. And if she catches you in the barn, then she chokes you until you say the name of a person for her to go kill. Then she beats you up so that everyone will see your bruises and know that it was you who who gave a name. And then she kills the person that you named. And the story is really about a young man named Jack. Jack has no property. He's got no profession, but he's in love with Molly and Molly is in love with him. The only problem, of course, is Molly's father, who will not let his daughter marry a poor boy. But Jack will not take the hint and just go away, so the father makes a deal with Jack. If Jack can spend an entire night in the haunted barn and deal with his banshee, then he can marry Molly. And so, Jack does. Or, you know, he tries anyway. Uh, The banshee chokes him, and he doesn't want to say anyone's name. Jack doesn't want to kill anyone. But he starts to worry that he might accidentally call out Molly's name in fear as he's choking to death. And so now he says the name of a man who made money by robbing people and never gave poor folk a penny, you know, someone he thinks of as being wicked in some way. And then the Banshee beats him up and throws him out. 
And that should have been the end of it. But he asks Molly's father for another chance. And Molly cries until her father agrees here. But Jack fails again. And this time he says the name of an old lady who is already very close to death. And then there is a third time, but this time Jack swears that if he really doesn't stay in the barn all night, this time he will go to Texas. But this time he fights the Banshee, and she still gets the better of him, though, and he says the name of Molly's father. But since Jack has done this before, he knows that when she hears the name, there's a little pause, there's a little moment when she's distracted. And so Jack uses that moment to strike, and he makes her spit the name back out. And she does. The name is like a material object that falls to the floor. It's very gross now because it's been inside of her belly. She offers to tell Jack about everyone who is going to die soon, but Jack doesn't want that. He doesn't want that knowledge. He beats her up now, beats her up for quite a bit. This is meant to be comical, by the way. (laughs) He beats her up and then asks her not who is going to die, but who's going to be born. And she says, the Antichrist, and you're to be the father. And then she explodes. And after this, Molly's father was very sick. He died a year later. And this is because his name had been inside the Banshee. But Jack and Molly marry, they grow old together. They never have any children. And and it's very clear that this is something that Jack is very worried about. So he actually, you know, I say they marry and grow old together, but he actually builds a house next to Molly's house that he lives in. They live in separate houses, I guess, so they don't, you know, make a baby. And that's Kate's story that Hannah heard when she was a child and that we're also heard when he was a child. And we're not quite done with this, but I I, want to pause here and, and talk about this story on its own terms before we get some of the weird framing of this story. Let's go through a little bit of this story. So first, the two characters are Molly and Jack. These are very strong Irish names. They're appropriate. Given the teller's heritage, Katie's heritage, Katie might be a first generation immigrant. Molly, in terms of, you know, what the name means, could mean sea of bitterness or star of the sea, or it could just mean rebellious. What's maybe more interesting here is that it's a diminutive form of Mary, uh, which is also the name of Hannah's sister or stepsister, half half sister, maybe. Uh, Jack, the name in in Celtic terms, means healthy and strong, uh, but it's most commonly used as a diminutive form of John. So that's something to keep in mind here, I think, as we continue to move through the story, uh, through the whole of the novel piece. We know that Hannah is growing growing up in a close-knit home um, because she mentions that there weren't the, all these new modes of communication, like telephones and things like that. So like people were isolated from one another for a, a long while. She said people maybe came up their property once a week. So they tell each other stories as a, as a mode of interaction. And this is you know one that Hannah heard when she was a kid. This banshee business then is also really interesting, especially as we consider how many times this text has already suggested to us the image of mothers and dead children. And, you know, this time the explanation is kind of given of why the mother would kill their child or hire somebody to do it is kind of politically expedient. Like they're having a bastard child and so it's not going to inherit any money. So they're going to have the child killed and they're going to have the midwife do it. So the Banshee, at least in terms of imagery here, is sort of tied to to Lamia, to the devouring mother, the mother who devours her own children. And in our discussion, we're going to be looking at what this imagery is doing all over this first chapter. It's something that really surprised me on this reading. 
All right, let's let's talk a little bit more about the story then. So I'm not sure who would willingly go into this situation with the Banshee. I suppose it's a way you could kill somebody, but Jack is willing to do this uh, somehow thinking that his pure romantic love of Molly will protect his moral superiority, perhaps, and that he'll be able to overcome the torture and temptations of the Banshee. But obviously he can't. So he makes this kind of ethical compromise in the name of romantic love that allows him to name people who he thinks should die or are going to die soon anyway. And this is a really dark way of thinking about what romantic love is capable of, because the outcome here is that he is going to birth the Antichrist or or contribute to the birth of the Antichrist in some way. So, I don't know. Maybe he shouldn't have learned this. Maybe he should have. It's it's hard to say. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy though because this is a love story in a sense, uh, but it's very very dark. There's also another reference to Saint Brendan, uh, who we discussed before, and Glenn, you pointed out when we brought him up that he is not from the 15th century. Uh, he's from the fifth and, and sixth centuries. But part of his acts, you know, that get him to sainthood, I suppose, did involve exercising a demon uh, from an Ethiopian. So this reference to St. Brandon here is is really interesting. It's something I think we're going to have to consider uh, in our discussion. Finally, I guess there are two more things I want to point out about this story. One is that the Banshee sees some strange things, uh, not just the Antichrist. She also sees an old man in the chimney corner forever. This is really a description of Weir in where he lives in his house. And Weir's mind just seems to be out of control here. I mean, the Antichrist has popped up. Jack and Molly didn't have kids. I don't know. That makes me think I'm going to be on the lookout for orphans or adoptions or something like that in this story, uh, because I, I actually don't know why the story is in the text in the way that it is. I don't know what role it's playing yet. So, yeah, that, that's kind of what I have to say about this main story here. But, Glenn, there's there's another weird framing element that uh, we need to talk about. Yeah, part of the the telling of this story has actually included bits of what was going on when Hannah first heard the story when she was a child. We get this in in italics. That's how that uh, you know the, the visual cue that we get that that it's it's separate to the story. It's not part of the narrative of the story. And you know, an example of this is Hannah's stepmother tells Kate not to pound on the table for sound effects because uh, that's going to wake the baby. Uh, and at the end of the story, we get a bit about Kate washing Hannah's face after dinner. You know, presumably, that's you know, when this story has been told, it's been told at, at dinner time. And Kate says that she can see someone behind Hannah. And Hannah explains that, well, that's just Weir or Denny, you know, she says. And he's been here before, you know. But then Kate also can see someone else behind him. And so, you know, the, the, the question is, hey, what what is what is going on here? Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's so weird. So Katie sees the ghost or some some apparition, some form of weird behind Hannah, who, you know, is somehow traveling in other people's memories here. This is very suggestive of like the hut scene in the book of the new sun when they're in the in the gardens. You know, it's very, very strange. Uh, Glenn, you've suggested already that you think Weir might be able to time travel or actually 
have some sort of power here or something. I'm just not sure what's going on. But yeah, someone behind Weir is the real question mark. I don't really have a better explanation for this uh, than the suggestion that I'm going to make that Wolf could be breaking the fourth wall here, that it's us, the audience, who is further intruding on this moment between Hannah and Katie. But to what end this belongs in the narrative? I'm, I'm not sure. We've also met uh, another ghost in the story so far, which is Weir's paternal grandmother, who he says haunted his birthday party, Pinkly. And that word pink uh, reminds us of the cake, and uh, which was also pink. It's just a very strange imagery that I'm not quite sure how to untangle. So this ghost could also be, uh, or apparition could also be the grandmother in some sense. But again, neither of these explanations really give us a sense of the meaningfulness of this extra person in this scene. Yeah, it's a very strange bit. And of course, you know, we've we've done one of five chapters now, right? This is our last recap episode for chapter one, but we'll still do a discussion episode after this. But there are only five chapters in this book, so we're 20% of the way through, except that we're not. This is a very short chapter for, for this book, so we're really only about, I don't know, a sixth of the way through this book, I guess, not a fifth of the way through this book, really. Uh, maybe even something more like a seventh, though no one needs to hear me list off any more fractions than that, so we'll, we'll stick <laughs> We could with even that. be an eighth of the way or a ninth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive us, dear listener. <laughs> but right, we're not very far into this, so we don't really know where this is going. We don't know what we're supposed to be looking for, other than that, you know, this is this has got red flags all over it. But I think that your impulse to think that this is us, this is this is, you know, us the readers, that's my sense as well. But, you know, that could be totally wrong. But thinking back just to the fact that, hey, there's Dr. Black in this story, which has so far amounted to nothing, and he's very clearly described as not being the Dr. Black from the Island of Dr. Death and other stories. But the big theme of the Island of Dr. Death and other stories is the continuity that stories can provide for anyone who reads them, right? Uh, and, and, and the way that our own lives, like the reality of our lives, and then also the books that we read, the stories that we hear, and so on, are, are all connected uh, in, a, in a weird way, this sort of fluidity between reality and, and story, the permeability maybe there. And that seems to be what's happening here as well, that somehow back in the 19th century, there's this uh, this girl, uh, Kate, I've been calling her Kate, you've been calling her Katie. She does go by both in the story. Hannah calls her Katie. Uh, Hannah's stepmother calls her Kate there, just to, to clarify that. But, but Kate is telling this story to Hannah. So Hannah is hearing this story. Then in the future, uh, early 20th century at some point, Weir is hearing this story. And then us here, for us, you know, 2021, we're reading this story. And I think that that's what's going on. Anyone who's participating in this story is there in the moment of its telling in this sort of mystical sense. Right. Uh, one of the big things we're going to look at in the discussion is the role that the relationship that Weir has with uh, what I'm going to call lost places or lost time uh, plays in his understanding of his life as it is. And uh, don't worry, if that was a confusing sentence, we'll make it more confusing by <laughs> attempting to unpack it, I think. <laughs> yeah, make, make it more confusing is really the, uh, the mission statement of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, we come out of this memory of Hannah. We are back in the present of the story. Weir still has not gone looking for his pocket knife yet, but now he is thinking about that again. And here he, he muses about his house. 
his house really is a mansion and he does literally get lost in it. And and part of what is confusing him is that he has a lot of what he calls museum rooms. As he aged and as his family members died, he inherited a lot of furniture from them. And when he had this mansion built, he decided to recreate the rooms that this furniture had been in, but not as functional rooms, really just to be living memories. Uh, and by the way, we, we should say as well that while we have had a lot of indications of family wealth already, uh, we're occasionally and, and actually quite casually mentions like board meetings uh, as well that we've not drawn attention to here at this point. Now, he, he mentions finally inheriting a company and, and having a lot of wealth. He just says, I had the money to do this and that, you know, explains that he's a wealthy person, or at least was a wealthy person. We don't really know anything about that yet, but probably we will eventually. And so Wolf is building that up for us here. But all right, we, we're almost done here for this episode. Then we'll have the, the discussion episode after that, of course. But Weir thinks about his mansion as a type of funhouse that he can get lost in. And that thought brings him back finally to Dr. Van Ness's office. And Dr. Van Ness is pestering Weir uh, about this test that he promised he would take in exchange for advice about how to deal with a stroke that he hasn't had yet, but might have in 15 years. And Weir says, I had forgotten all about you. I thought you were gone. But the test is a, or at least one of the tests maybe, is a a full-length mirror that can be adjusted to distort the image. It is very much like a funhouse mirror. And, And in fact, that is the thought that's brought Weir back here and seemingly back here against his will. But the idea is that Weir is going to adjust this mirror until it shows his reflection accurately, uh, which he does after he plays with it a little bit. I mean, you know, it's funny to make yourself look weird, I guess. So he does that and he sets it basically perfectly. And so the the doctor says that Weir has a a high IDR, describes him as having someone with with high self-concern. I'm not sure what IDR is. I I don't know. I hope maybe you've looked into that, Brandon. But what I think really matters here is that Weir grows tired of this conversation. And he says, all I really wanted from you was advice about the effect of exercise on my stroke. I've got that. And now I really should wipe you out. And the doctor's alarmed by this, by, by this phrase here, though he's cool about it. He's pretty collected about it. But he asks Weir, if Weir really thinks he can do that, if he really thinks he can wipe him out, and Weir explains here now that the doctor's not real. This is not the real world. The real world is where he is old and is recovering from a stroke. This world, this doctor's visit, has been conjured from Weir's imagination and Weir's memories. But Dr. Van Ness continues talking, and he wants Weir to take another test, and this one with some cards. And this chapter ends with Dr. Van Ness saying, turn over the first card. Tell me who the people are and what they are doing. Yes, uh, I'm going to get to that in in a moment. I want to break down kind of what we went through with the house and then with the doctor. But before I even get to the house, uh, there is a final section to this story with Hannah, where she finally tells the tale about the time that she visited the Indians with her father. And um, this description of her time visiting the Indians is really caught up with uh, stereotypical uh, conversion stories, uh, missionary stories about the Indians that were part of the uh, colonial and kind of post-colonial period in American history, which is its own really fascinating kind of group uh, grouping of American literature. If you read some of these conversion stories, you know, how did Indians 
become come to be represented as like alcoholics and things like that. Well, this was part of a Christian missionary push to save the Indians from their own degenerate lifestyles and things like that. Uh, and there were many Indians who did convert American Indians. I'm using Indian here because the text uses it. There are, uh, you know, uh, First Nations peoples. There's there's all kinds of other phrases we could use. I'm going to stick with the text uh, just just for shorthand here. Um, But at the end of this section, Hannah kind of crawls inside one of these Indian homes and a mother is holding a baby that is still uh, and she's kind of looking dully. The mother is out and Hannah thinks the baby is dead and the father says it's probably not dead. The mother's probably just drunk. So here we have more imagery with a mother and a dead baby. This is just blowing me away. The number of times this shows up in the text. It's just something I really did not expect to see. And I don't know what bearing it's going to have going forward. But what's interesting is this sentence that comes right after this section break where Weir is thinking about his house. He says, the Indian has his knife and now I must go find mine or something along those lines. But this phrase, the Indian has his knife, indicates something about the presence of memories and how what those memories are in Weir's mind is caught in an eternal present, that that is a fixed moment and that is unchanging, but his life can continue to change. And I think this is more clear. This idea is more clear in the way in which Weir discusses what Dr. Van Ness considers to be Weir's delusion and and may well be, or it could not be at all. Um, all right. So that that's that. Uh, that's kind of wrapping up that last section here. Let's talk about this house here. So when Weir is thinking about all these past houses that he had and how he could have preserved them with his money, instead he built this museum house, he makes a reference to Titania, who was the queen of the fairies in uh, Midsummer's Night Dream, the wife of Oberon. Uh, I spoke of Mab in our last episode. I believe I said she was the fairy queen, which isn't wrong. She's called Queen Mab, uh, but she's also described as the fairy's midwife for whatever difference that makes in Shakespeare's like fairy taxonomies and categories. <laughs> but uh, Titania is the queen of the fairies in, in A Midsummer's Night Dream. And she enters the play in act two, scene one with a monologue, uh, about how her and Oberon's conflict over two things, really. One, their infidelities, their jealousy of one another, and also the fact that they want to use a changeling that she snagged for different reasons. Uh, But it's primarily about jealousy, but this kind of child is, is a part of it as well. The point is that they're both really jealous of each other. And in Titania's monologue, this jealousy has led to environmental catastrophe, notably winter and wet weather have caused the destruction of like lawn sport areas. And this is what's mentioned in the text. He talks about uh, the nine Morris field being swamped. The last line of the monologue then is this, and I'm not sure how this plays into the grand scheme of things, but it jumped out at me, especially given that we've had reference to an Antichrist already. This is Titania's last line. She says, and this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our discussion. We are their parents and original. Now she's talking about how their imbalance in their relationship has caused 
these uh, catastrophes in the real world, this destruction of property, uh, that is the progeny of evils. But it also calls to mind that they are the parents of an evil thing. So very strange here. Very, very strange choice of imagery and monologue. Something that's apparently simple. Yeah. Quoting Shakespeare to talk about how weather destroyed your tennis court. Um <laughs> You know, is being used here, I think, on a number of levels. Well, this whole chapter, the whole book opens with a tree falling because of winter, presumably because it because it's heavy with all this this snow, the snow that is melting, right? Snow gets heavier as it as it's going to melt, uh, especially if it's iced over overnight, thing that happens a lot in the in the Midwest. And so that's how the story opens with weather causing some sort of destruction and waking up weir and then starting this train of thought. Exactly. Uh, so we'll just have to keep those in mind, especially this fairy element, I think. Uh, and again, in our discussion, I'm going to be pointing out uh, or maybe trying to draw out what role this uh, fairy world has to do with Weir and his memories at all. Uh, let's talk about this house a little bit. I don't have too much to say about it. Yeah, you, there's these museum rooms and all this stuff. The final description of the house that Weir gives us in this chapter is as a mirror maze. Uh a fun house, he calls it, but I don't know if you've ever been to the boardwalk in like Long Beach Island or any boardwalk. He describes it as a mirror maze or a house of mirrors or something like that as well. But a lot, of, I just want to say that a lot of this description of Weir's new house that he built reminds me of what is known as the Winchester Mystery House or the Winchester Mansion that was built um, and designed by a very unwell woman who had a lot of belief in spirits and ghosts. And there are stairs that lead to nowhere. The house's construction is very off-putting and unsettling. Rooms without windows, too many rooms where they don't belong. And I really wonder if this is what Wolf has in mind here. The house... The Winchester Mystery House was built to entertain beliefs uh, about how to keep ghosts and spirits appeased. That is like the explicit design specs that uh, <laughs> the, the Lady Winchester came up, like had in her head about having people constantly b build this house. So it's a mad construction. It's a place I'd like to visit someday. Um, but yeah, th that's how this... Uh, that's how this description of the house really felt to me. For me, it did not really call it to mind the, the Winchester Mansion, although, you know, that's a cool place. It's in San Jose. I've never actually been there, but I, I would love to check it out. To me, this really just signaled that something I guess we already kind of know about Weir, which is that he is really attached to the past and and the people he knew in his life who are who are dead. And so what we learn here is that at some point in the past, I, I guess, but this house is about 20 years old, 15 years old at this point, that he decided to recreate places from his youth, places that belonged to people who were important to him so that they would continue to exist materially in the world and not just be his, uh, not just be his memories. I mean, it, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, as an adult, you know, you Buy, you buy a house and you say, you know what, I want to recreate my childhood bedroom in this house. I, I'm not going to use that room as my bedroom. It's not going to be anyone else's bedroom. It's just going to be a room that I'm going to have in this house so that I can go look at it from time to time and preserve this memory in this real and, and three-dimensional way, which uh, you know I don't find as a totally alien impulse, I, I suppose, to want to preserve a memory like that. But, you know, if I went to your house, Brandon, and you were showing me a room like that. I, I would, I'd want to talk to you. 
Yes. Well, maybe we can both sit down with my mother and have a conversation <laughs> with her. Um, uh, I jest here. Uh, she 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 does like to to hold on to some fa- family heirlooms. Well, that's the other thing here too, right? Is that that this I think maybe seems a little bit weird to us because we all just have IKEA furniture that we we just don't even move with us anymore. But like this is a world where furniture is a big deal. It's well made. It's important. It's expensive, and so you don't just get rid of it. Right. It's not like, you know, we grew up, even our parents grew up in a home that had, you know, furniture from the American craftsman movement or anything like that. Right. Uh, the arts and crafts movement like that, that was pretty much the last gasp of, you know, holding on to the idea that furniture is heirloom, that that a classic style will kind of remain forever. Perhaps Bauhaus was part of this. That was not an American movement, though. Um, I wonder if it's coming back. But I mean, when a table costs five thousand dollars or more uh, and it's going to last for many generations and mo- most Americans, um, the majority of Americans are one medical emergency away from bankruptcy. We have a very different relationship with our objects uh, and the permanence of objects in our world. We can't even afford, many of us, to um, have something that would be passed down to generation, uh, to, to the generations after us, not to even mention the fact that our kind of consumer culture requires that everything either become obsolete through style or function after a period of time, uh, because our job in, in, in the middle class or really as we're addressed, uh, generally speaking, is to be consumers in order to keep the economy going. So that's a problem of cosmology. And that will be <laughs> part of our discussion, <laughs> I think. Uh, I don't know if we'll be talking about that portion of kind of what how we're addressed, how we're interpolated into society. Um, I doubt we'll get there, but I just felt I needed to make that point now because it's a point I often like to make. Uh, all right. Well, now that I've ranted about that for a moment, let's move on to the last section here, which is the the doctor's office. The first thing I want to point out here, and I think it's really important uh, in in considering whether we're is in his in in the room with the flagstone chimney or whether he's in the doctor's office whether any of this is real what is real is that weir makes an ex- extrapolation here uh which we talked about in our first recap episode about the makeup of this mirror and he's corrected by the doctor so that jumps out to me as a big red flag of what is real and what is not if th- the doctor isn't real why would Weir correct himself in this way? To what benefit is this a part of the text? Uh, big question mark for me. So I just want to point that out. The next part we pointed out, Glenn, that you asked me and hoped I did some research on was this IDR phrase, yes. right? With the, with the mirror. <laughs> this is also caught up with the word psychosomic. It's not a word that is in our language. We have psychosomatic, which is the influence of the mind on the body. And it's the ability to come up with uh to impact you physically so you might be like feeling unwell in your head and then you're like your knee hurts or something it's a terrible example but it's the relationship that the mind has to the body so psychosomic here is similar and i can only think of this whole exercise in terms of maybe like the matrix so in terms of like the residual self-image like does 
is we're aware of how other people see him in a physical sense. His spiritual or his mind's account of himself matches perfectly with his physical accounting in some empirical sense. But listen, for the life of me, I have no idea what IDR is. And I hope someone (laughs) out there knows and will tell us. I have spent days on acronym pages. I have read research papers uh, on psychology. There is no test like this, as far as I can tell, using a funhouse mirror in a real sense to determine your self-image in in some way. I, I mean, maybe my research skills are just not up to snuff here, but there is the mirror test. This is a classic psychological test, and that determines... Uh, a period of time, usually toddlers are able to do this, some animals too. You put a red dot on a person, uh, tell them about it, and then they see that in the mirror and are able to correlate themselves with the uh, image in the mirror. It's called. It's also called the red dot test. A test to determine whether or not an adjustable funhouse mirror correlates to our self-image really seems dubious to me at best. Uh, the point here. Maybe that if such a test were to be invented and administered, it would determine something like whether our ideal self is in relation to our actual self on type uh, some type of scale. So I've toyed with like identity ratio or ideal something reflection. I, I don't know what this could really mean, but I'm not sure to what degree such a test could be conclusive about anything at all. It might be fun to imagine ourselves in different ways using a mirror like, you know, he talks about enlarging his genitals or broadening his shoulders or all these sorts of things that he plays with. I don't know what if that would mean anything conclusive in a, in a psychological study. I mean, I know that there are times when you're asked to draw yourself in counseling sessions or things like that. Um, that might indicate something, but this is this to me is is kind of like reading tea leaves. Like I don't really know how much you're you're going to be able to meaningfully impact the course of someone's life or their sense of self by um, having them adjust uh, uh, knobs on a funhouse mirror. Well, I think that's a fair assessment, actually, of almost all psychology <laughs> up until about this point, right? That so much of it is just is, is pseudoscience predicated on on real faulty assumptions. And we've seen that uh, be something that Wolf engages with a lot in the, the stories and novels that we've we've covered so, fa- so far, engaging in late 19th and early 20th century psychological s- studies that just really don't stand up to to scrutiny, you know, today or even really even in the the 70s when Wolf was writing these things. Right, exactly. And th- this is especially a ki- a kind of uh the crazy test, I think. Uh there're just two more things I want to say. And the, la- the 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 next thing I'll say just since we're talking about psychological tests here is that what Weir is given by the doctor at the end of this chapter is something called the thematic apperception test. Um, Basically, one is given an image or a series of image and images and asked to narrate what is going on before and after the image or in the interstitial uh, blanks between these images. I've taken these before. I also think these have dubious value. Maybe I just don't know the research on them, or perhaps I just thought so at the time when I was taking them in, in seventh grade. Um, <laughs> but maybe they do reveal something about how the mind approaches a broken story. Um, maybe this is also how the story is structured. Uh, but by the ending of the chapter, 
we don't have the image on the card, but maybe we can infer that what the image is has something to do with where the narrative takes us next. It can, I suppose, a thematic apperception test give the administrator of the test a sense of what is on the mind of the person, how they're contextualizing themselves in some way. Again, I don't know the research on the value of these. Um, the last thing I want to touch on here is the interaction that you pointed out, Glenn, about Weir's ability to wipe out existence or this existence that he's a part of. So Weir, in this sense, is, is a solipsist, right? He doesn't believe that these other minds exist. He thinks he's the only mind that exists in this manufactured world in his, I don't know, memory palace, we could call it, though that's the wrong use of that phrase. And that, that may be true. Uh, this may be the way that we interact with memory, um, but if Weir is actually like physically in these places and traveling in these other places, it would mean that there are no other wills, no others with willpower that he has to contend with if his assessment of the situation is true. But the fact that he's getting pushback on this assessment, I think, should raise alarm bells in the same way that the doctor correcting Weir's extrapolation should raise uh I guess you raise red flags and you ring alarm bells, but uh, to mix a metaphor should also raise the alarm. Yeah. Well, we're going to raise alarms here on this podcast. I think that's, (laughs) that's, that's the new thing we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, something is up here and you and I are going to, I think maybe intentionally, although we didn't, coordinate it, but stake out some some polar opposite positions here, and we'll just argue about them for the uh, duration of this book, and then maybe we'll figure things out <laughs> in the uh, wrap-up episode about what is going on with these memories. Are they memories? Is we're traveling into the past in some way, or you know, another dimension that that is similar to the past or something like that? Is he creating another world here, which is actually literally what he says he is doing here? There's a lot of stuff in this section here, the end of of chapter one that we've covered here today that suggests that we're somehow is physically going to the past or, or or spiritually going to the past in some way. His his consciousness, I guess, is going to the past in some way, but he's in, inhabiting it. That we get that uh, some, stronger than a hint, I guess, here in the doctor's office. But then there's the weird business with his presence at the the story about the Banshee in, in at a time when he wasn't even alive, right? So there's weird stuff going on there. But all of that then is also just tempered by the fact that Weir is obviously kind of a weirdo to begin with because he 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 clearly thinks that what he's doing is imagining something that he's remembering a doctor's visit that he had with Dr. Van Ness and then is imagining a conversation that they might have had together 15 years ago in which he could get some medical advice about what to do in the aftermath of a stroke regarding exercise but and, and that he's just like populating that memory with the, the scenery from this real life thing that happened. But I don't think that anyone actually would really think that that's a good way to get medical advice, like from your own imagination. If you're not sure, should I exercise or not? Your own imagination is not the place to go get that answer. Yet he is going to take the answer that he gets from a person he's imagining and presumably then also is controlling is feeding this dialogue to He's going to take that as if it's real advice. So something something is weird there to begin with from just the whole premise of this from Weir's perspective. Right. And the advice that Weir actually gets is like to do some gardening 
and to talk with other people. Uh, That's the advice he gets. The advice he hears is go find your knife so you can exercise. So (laughs) there's also a real like dissonance between those two uh, concepts right there as well. Well, right. And that's the thing he wanted to go do anyway, right? It, it was to go find his knife. He's like, but I'm not sure if I should. Let me go ask Dr. Van Ness. I'll, uh, you know, in my memory, I'll ask him. And he gets an answer that is has nothing to do with the knife, or at least does not invoke the knife specifically, but is, you know, go pull some weeds. And he says, cool, I'll go find my knife, which I wanted to do anyway. So now you've given me permission to the, do the thing that I wanted to do. And then as far as we can tell, he completely ignores the instruction to talk to some people. But obviously, this Dr. Van Ness, whether he's real or really is a construct of, of Weir's imagination, is concerned about Weir's mental health at this point. Right. And yeah, you use the word construct. The text on multiple occasions uses the word conjuring, uh, which I think is in a very intentional word on, on Wolf's behalf for its connotations in, in kind of mystical and spiritual practices. But I think we have a lot to talk about in this chapter. So much is unknown, and uh, we're going to have to leave it that way. All of these answers and our positions and our uh, spats over who is right and what the text means will, <laughs> will be out uh, in, in future episodes as we get deeper into this text. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've started to throw down some gauntlets here and also, of course, raise uh, loads and loads of questions. So we hope you will come talk with us about that in a in a spoiler free way, though, at least until we finish the book on our forum at claytemplemedia.com or come over to our, our subreddit, which is just Clay Temple Media. And so we're not quite done with chapter one yet. Next time we are going to be back with a discussion episode. We've kind of wandered into doing that here already, but we will be back next time with a, uh, a focused discussion episode on many of the things that we've raised here in in these recap episodes. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>